So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm talking to Jen Perlman, who ran against Debbie Wasserman Schultz in the latest congressional race and is host of the podcast Generational Change. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. So you, well, we are here to talk about uh, Julian Assange and uh, the assault on freedom of speech and our civil liberties at the moment. So do you want to maybe start by giving like like a little overview of, of like the Assange case, just for anyone listening who, who isn't like intimately familiar with the details of his of his case? Sure. So in general, Julian Assange is a publisher. Um creator, founder of WikiLeaks. And he, and this is, I'm going to speak as to the reason why he is supposedly being prosecuted now. Let me talk about like that first. So he is currently being prosecuted um, for what they believe uh, under the, under the United States Espionage Act. I could get into how weird this is that a foreign national can be tried under that, but okay. Um, For releasing information and giving information to the media that demonstrated how the United States military uh, was killing civilians. And this, I mean, there have been several WikiLeaks stories, but the one that he is currently being prosecuted or that the United States is seeking to extradite on is where at that time, Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, um, who was in the military, uh, gave Julian Assange or gave WikiLeaks information that showed video footage of our military, of our soldiers gunning down civilians knowingly. Um, this is something that came out. Oh my God, what was the year? You're going to have to remind me. I want to say. I think it was from like five. Um, yeah, it was like, yeah, it was around that. And so they, our government is trying to show that he actually is the one who broke into and hacked into the system to get the information. And that's just not true. Um, So that's the technical legal thing that he's being sought on. Um, But what he's really being sought on is embarrassing the Clintons and a whole bunch of other people in our Democratic Party in 2016. And that is why this has been the witch hunt against Julian Assange. Mm. I mean, the case was um, he was he was already uh, making waves, shall we say, before that with WikiLeaks, um, as you mentioned, yes. when, he, when he was uh, revealing those videos of the U.S. soldiers in Iraq. And one of the things that that, that we, we mentioned we were going to talk about is that the, the kind of wider implications of his case are that there is certain information that like the the ruling class or the establishment or however you want to describe it, decide that we are maybe not party to seeing that we don't deserve or shouldn't see. And he's been pursued, at least in, in my mind, um, because, because he's decided to tell the truth. Um, And that's a, that's a pretty scary uh, place to, 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 to be at in, in 2021. Yeah. You know, I don't know what your founding documents are where, you know, in Ireland, but in this country, what we're doing is a complete violation of the First Amendment, a complete violation of the First Amendment. And I have been saying this for the better part of 10 years, that the prosecution, if they are successfully able to prosecute Julian Assange um, for, for printing and releasing the truth, that is the end of what I, our First Amendment. It's gone. Mm. That's it. 
So I, and I'm not being hyperbolic, like I, and I'm sure that, you know, Ireland and, and the UK and there's other countries have similar provisions in place. Um, but really this is very significant. Mm. Uh, ours is more of like a, it's called an unwritten or uncodified constitution. So it's sort of just like everything that built up over the past, I don't know, you could go back like 800 years. Um, so it's not, it's not quite as like cut and clear as, as the US yeah. constitution and the bill of rights. Um, I mean, there's some people that think we should have, have, uh, have that codified. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of more and more in favor of that as, as those rights become infringed upon more and more, but the, the kind of bigger picture of the of the Julian Assange case has been watching certain parts of the media almost cheer on or be pleased about his prosecution and some parts of the media being like obviously horrified at the the, the idea that a journalist can be prosecuted for printing the truth uh, why do you think it is that we've got that split like surely surely that should be something upon which the media is totally united like that if you want to print the truth and you have the documents to prove it's the truth that should be it like why do you think there is that that division yeah no i actually know why there's that division it's interesting because there's two types of talking heads okay you've got journalists and reporters and investigative you know people that are actually seeking information and then you have state sponsored um, propaganda and state-sponsored propaganda, which is what most people watch, unfortunately, it's, it's mainstream media. Um, they do not, they are so willing to throw Julian Assange under the bus um, because it suits their corporate donors. I mean, we have 90% of our media is owned by about five, six for-profit corporations. All of those people probably hate Julian Assange. Um, so this is something that is a witch hunt. It's been a witch hunt. So what you have is you'll have actual journalists, actual, uh, independent media people that are going to be very supportive of Julian Assange because they have no corporate donors that are not allowing them to go forward with this information. We've had seen a total blackout of Julian Assange, um, on mainstream media in general, you don't even see it. Um, so they don't only, I mean, they're, they ghost him, but they, they get too much corporate money. Those are not that's I mean, we just have to distinguish between talking heads and journalists. And there's a very big distinction. Mm. Yeah. The, the, well, I mean, I guess like it becomes a case of like the corporate media versus sort of independent journalists. Like not that there isn't like great journalists working in almost every organization, but like somewhere like CNN doesn't doesn't hire out investigative reporters and and do, it's a it's like a commentary like theater basically. <laughs> um, we stopped having our mainstream media stopped having foreign correspondents um, after nine eleven, but really it was at the first when the first Iraq War with uh, Bush Senior, um, where um, they they were putting out this moratorium on. on coffins being shown coming back. And then under W, that was it. There was no, like after 9-11, they wouldn't allow the media and the, to be seeing what's going on in the world. So we can keep everybody in this nice little bubble where they only are privy to what the state wants them to know. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have investigative reporters out there anymore. People who used to be on TV, um, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, like even that generation, which definitely was corporate, but those were still actual journalists. Someone like Dan Rather, he was an on-ground reporter in Vietnam. Like we used to have that. Mm -hmm. um, and since 9-11, that is completely gone. 
Mm. And that's the problem. So the, the people that are telling us, they're only telling us what the situation room at the White House tells them to tell us. Mm. They're just stenographers of of the establishment that that's not they're not reporting anything. Do you think that that's like entirely because they don't want you to see the things outside of the bubble? Or do you think there's like a, a financial incentive in there as well? You know, it's much easier to just get you know, get the information from the White House, like press team and and not bother to send out an investigative reporter. Like, do you think? No, they're banned. They're barred from it. No, I not only do I think that they're barred. Yeah, they don't. They're not. None of the mainstream outlets have on the ground reporting in any of the places that like Syria, Iraq, any place where there's where we're not going to look good. You'll never have somebody on the ground reporting from there anymore. It's just not how it works. All they'll do is they'll have some expert come on or some spokesperson from the Pentagon or whoever it is. But there is no field reporting anymore. Um, And the kind of outlets that do field reporting, what's interesting is you get a completely different picture. Completely different. Max Blumenthal interviewed Maduro. And that is actual journalism. That's go and spend time in Venezuela. And that's reporting. That's investigative journalism. We don't get that in the mainstream whatsoever. We just get a talking point, a video clip that's been pre-approved, and then maybe some expert that was brought in by the corporate donor of that channel. That's basically all we get. And I think that Ultimately, there's a huge financial incentive. Um, Obviously, the elite people want to keep us as ignorant and fighting amongst ourselves as we possibly can um, and create all sorts of stupid issues like um, whether or not transgender people can use bathrooms and getting people riled up about nonsense to keep the working people from uniting together against the oligarchs. Mm. And so I generally look at what used to be the fourth estate as now it's just another arm of the oligarchy and the actual fourth estate, which are the people out on the fringe, like the gray zone journalists and, you know, like Abby Martin and Eva Bartlett. And you've got some, there are good journalists in the world, mm-hmm. um, but they're kept from having the size platform um, that they would need to reach most people in this country. I can't, you know, like we are extremely bubbled and ignorant here. And I'm aware of that. So I can only speak in this country and your average, Average person in this country will watch CNN or MSNBC, and that's it. That's all they watch, and that's their base of information. And it is extremely um, Western, white supremacist, imperialist-based propaganda. Okay, but th- when you've been growing up in that, you don't notice it. It's gradual, and um, so really, it's. I think they do it to keep everybody ignorant. Why do you say it's white supremacist based propaganda before we, we go, go to something else? Like, whoa, yeah. Why? Why do you say that? Well, when I say that, I'm talking about just like this Western um, Northern Hemisphere thing where white is, is superior to dark, where the people in the dark brown countries are the ones that are terrorists and criminals. Uh, the people that have brown skin that are coming across the border that we have to be scared of. And so I, I think that we our mainstream media continuously propagates. Um, and at this point, I'm just it's so just run of the mill. Like it's not even, these are not people coming out like, you know, as clan members wearing hoods and stuff, but it's just the subtlety of how they cover different people. And those people often happen to be of darker skin. And those people are often othered 
by our mainstream media. They're seen as wrongdoers, as terrorists, as savages. They can't get their own lives together. They'd all fight amongst themselves. They need us to save them. That entire mentality is, in my opinion, a very anti-dark skin. I'm not going to say anti-black because there's you know a variety of shades, but it is. And that's our mainstream narrative. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm curious to like like, do you think it's white supremacism or do you think it's like almost like a, a, a like a, an American supremacism thing? Because I mean, it kind of clashes with what you were saying before about because something that I really like really believe uh, that you were saying uh, earlier was about the the sort of desire to have us fighting amongst ourselves. And and whilst yeah. I, I I definitely agree that like there's some some news outlets and, and a lot of like vilification of say immigration or of people like refugees, especially like for in, in the UK, for example, we had a lot of vilification <clears throat> of, of people fleeing across the Mediterranean from from Syria when they're, you know, when that 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 doesn't seem like a like an easy option um, if you're going to consider like trying to come across the med on a dinghy. But do you yeah. think it's solely like a, a white supremacism or do you think it's kind of like stoking both sides of a fight? Like you were saying with uh, like culture war issues, like the transgender bathrooms or, or we've got the, the, the Megan Markle, Harry thing at the minute, or there's like yeah. the, the, in, in the UK, there was a woman who was, uh, who was uh, murdered by a, or well, was on trial going to trial for murder of a of a girl who's a who he was a police officer and there was um a bunch of protests or uh candlelit vigils um as they described them uh in london and then the police came and sort of manhandled uh some some girls who were at the vigil out of the way and this is being like whipped up as like a battle for like men against women so like for from my perspective yeah. from my perspective it seems to be not like simply one like like ideology like a like the, the the american or white supremacist ideology it seems to be like this stirring up from from every side where we can where it means that we are are divided and and busy fighting our own stupid like inconsequential battles instead of trying to like take down the the establishment essentially yeah i mean that is definitely happening but when i'm talking about like this is this is all sort of fairly new to me in terms of like a lot of reading i've been doing but in general, how we teach people and how we teach history, and this is globally, comes from a very colonial, imperialist view of the world. We, we're so indoctrinated with it that it is just, I'm not talking about the current situation of racial issues or misogyny issues, or I'm, that's all just a distraction. I'm talking about the big picture of Western civilization and how we are, um, how we are basically indoctrinated, both in how we are taught history and in how the media presents what's going on in the world. For example, um, if you were to ask the average person in this country, what are your thoughts about Venezuela? Okay. Mm. Their answer will likely be, oh, he's a socialist dictator and we have to help those people. And, and then if I were to say something to them, like, well, what are your thoughts about the sanctions? on the people of Venezuela. Oh, well, we have to do that because we need to have them be able to create a better system for themselves or whatever their their mainstream media talking points would be. Right. So this isn't this is based on. Um, and here's the clear division that we see in this country. So, for example, in my district, we have a lot of Venezuelan people. They're white Venezuelans. They're wealthy. 
generally, and they're white Venezuelans. Now, when you go to Venezuela and you talk to actual people in Venezuela, like somebody like Max Blumenthal or Aaron Mate or any of the journalists that actually do that, um, what you find is a completely different story. Um, th these are not these are not people that want to be saved by us. They want to be left alone by us. The majority of people in Venezuela elected this person. And yet we wouldn't know that. And that is not the talking points we get. We get this. And it is to me like a very um, supremacist, like we're going to come in. We get to decide how you govern, how you live. And we're coming in now. We sell it to our people. We manufacture consent by making it be we're helping them. We're bringing them democracy. We're saving them from this ruthless dictator. And I do not think it's a coincidence that every time that that has happened historically, um, it is a dark skinned nation. We don't we don't go up to someplace, you know, like, you know, I don't know, pick some small Slavic nation and just sort of like, you know, go in there. This is because we can create a perception of this like white savior. And we're all so used to it. This is a global thing. This is a global thing. And this is something that happens everywhere, even in Africa. Like this is a global thing that we are indoctrinated um, in, a, in a white supremacy, uh, patriarchal, like we are supposed to help the poor brown people. And that is how we sell all of these conflicts, at least in this country. Like, again, I can't speak as to like what your how your media sells it. But here it is very patriarchal, very paternalistic, very um, we have to help those poor people. And it's this constant portrayal um, of certain groups as lesser and other. And I do think that that comes into play in terms of what we're willing to accept on foreign policy, um, what we're willing to forego as far as civil li liberties to protect our safety because we're so scared of those people. Um, I think that there is a very um, specific element because we started seeing it very heavily after 9-11, um, not just uh, racially profiling African-Americans. I mean, that's forever and a day old here. But now, and we just saw last night, apparently, we, we just had a massacre of eight Asian women in Atlanta. Um, so the hatred is deep, but it's for the most part perpetrated and accepted in this country by this perceived idea of, I believe, a white supremacy globally it's awful i didn't know about that shooting i'll have to look. oh it was well this is you know our national news it just happened last night some lunatic um with a very anti-asian you know mindset drove around I, I don't know how many parlors he hit like the massage parlors but ultimately killing eight people i think six of them were mis were women that were working and, and i don't know who the other two people were but as a hate this is a hate crime. This is whatever nonsense our media is using to fuel people up um, to hate Asian people, like the the China virus or whatever they're calling it. Like just, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, what happened last well, night. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they called it. Well, I, I, as far as I've seen, they haven't called it the China virus that much. They like condemned, Trump did. They, yeah, they condemned Trump, Trump called it the China virus. Yeah, I mean. Like I, I have found it amusing the way that like all of the variants can be from every other place, but the China virus thing is is um, like frowned upon. Like we can have the British variant or the Brazilian variant or the Nigerian variant. So I find it amusing the way that like one one thing like <laughs> I don't know. There's there's something there that that certain you're not allowed to say it's from certain places, and it's, it's yeah, 
is interesting. Um, but I want to get back to something you mentioned about like journalists on the ground, because this yeah. is something where I can plug my book. Um, that I was looking yeah. at uh, in the book, I talked about this case of, oh, it would have been 2017 uh, when the UK uh, chose to take part in bombing of Syria after alleged chemical attacks by by yeah. Assad on his um, on his own people. Now uh, there was very little material evidence that these chemical attacks had, been, had taken place. And uh, Robert Fisk, who was an award-winning journalist for The, the Independent and, and a number of different outlets, who was on the ground there, said that there seemed to be no like suggestion that these were chemical attacks. They thought perhaps they'd been staged or, or essentially he found very little evidence for it. And, and yet the UK still went ahead with its... Um, yeah, the UK weren't alone, but we went ahead with bombing based on retaliation for chemi- chemical attacks of which there didn't seem to be much material proof. And then the BBC, like, like I wouldn't compare them to CNN. They're not quite that bad yet. No, 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 no. Um, I mean, I've we've had UK, we've had UK politicians calling for a um, fair, impartial news outlet like CNN in the UK, and I just oh. every, yeah, yeah, seriously, I I saw it, and it was like Lord, it was Lord oh. Andrew Adonis who is meant to be a smart, well engaged guy. Anyway. That's aside from the point. Um, but the BBC then put an article about um, the, the 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 conspiracy theorists online spreading misinformation about the Syrian chemical attacks, and and so it's like the it's 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 almost like a machine where like the establishment line gets pumped by the by the the mainstream press and then anytime that anyone comes in to try and question that like through normal journalistic practices it then gets shut down again by the media who were pushing the original line it's like like how can you be trusted to fact check someone criticizing you <laughs> yeah it's it, it's very problematic and i always tell people you just got to follow the money um, when you're, if, if, if a media is owned by a corporation, that corporation is going to serve its special interests. And in fact, the sole purpose of a corporation, basically, most of these, most of these companies that we're talking about is to serve their shareholders. Their sole purpose is profit. That's it. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about the facts. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about anything. They care about profit. That's it. And so when that is somebody's motivation, you always have to be suspicious of the quality of information that you're getting um, there that that's that's without a doubt so for me um, I generally know that whatever is coming from mainstream media is just whatever the talking points at the Pentagon or the White House have put out and that's it you're not going to get any sort of like research reporting investigation you're not going to get that I mean for anyone that's sitting here being like well you know how the corporations influence the media they're a totally different thing like how would you explain how that relationship works and how they have an influence on the way the, the news is portrayed Yeah so for example um a lot of the same companies that are let's say I don't know contractors military industrial complex companies right those same companies own media outlets. So those media outlets are not going to speak truth to power on military actions, on foreign policy. You're not going to get an unbiased view because their donors will shut that down. Um, You're not going to get um, uh, investigative reports on really good um, like alternative fuels and different things because the fossil fuel companies are advertisers, huge advertisers, big pharma. Big pharma is a huge advertiser on the station. So it's, you're getting the control of 
both the person who owns the media organization and what's in their best interest, which I can assure you financially is not in our best interest. And then you also have the interests of their advertisers. And that's an extremely powerful thing. So when you have that in conjunction with those same advertisers, like whether it's big pharma or fossil fuels or the military industrial complex, those same um, donors also have lots of lobbyists and buy lots of Congress people. So it's this multi, like, it's like a siege from every angle. Um, they have taken over every branch of our government, all three branches of our government, and they have taken over the fourth estate. And it's just, we are an oligarchy. Mm. We are an oligarchy that has this sort of contrived um, appearance of a democracy that isn't real. And they are starting to get more and more fascist. Um, and, and this has nothing to do with our political parties. This is global. This is happening globally. So um, in this country, we get distracted with the party nonsense and all of that. Um, but all roads lead to the same thing is infringement of civil liberties, grasping of more money and power by the elites and the oligarchs, and more and more people falling below um, a minimum standard of living, thereby losing more and more power. When you're struggling to live, you don't have time to be speaking truth to power. You're just trying to figure out how to feed your family. The more desperate people get, the more we'll fight amongst ourselves. It's, I mean, it's like... Um, it reminds me of like ancient things, you know, like when you talk about like ancient civilizations and you look back on how they kept everything in order, this is how. Yeah, I mean, I, like something that's always, always interesting is like when 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 I have the, the when I have discussions with people about things like this, like I was talking to my brother about about this recently and he said, do you really think that this like crisis and moment is being used to as as a power grab essentially like to 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 take more power from the people and and, and give it to to the, the you know the the power brokers who are already sort of over like pockets running over with money and influence and and he said you know you're being crazy like they're just stupid incompetent people they're not they're not actually like doing this and i'm like look like show me a moment in history when governments all over the world have taken the the, the powers that they're now taking and then given them back peacefully like outside of wartime and and he was like yeah well you know i don't know as much history and i was like look i i'm not like a big student of history but to i know these things happened in the past and why do you think it is that people don't believe that even though we have the entirety of human history to 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 sort of take examples from some of the horrible dictators throughout the 20th century um of like clamping down, taking more power, becoming horrendously corrupt, and and you know all all of the the, the problems that come along with with uh, that particular sort of scenario, and then don't think that it's possible now. Like post post two thousand, everything was rosy, and you know people weren't bad anymore. And why do you think that cognitive dissonance occurs where people don't think it can happen again? Yeah. And this is really interesting. So I recently had Tom Hartman. I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Hartman uh, on my show. He has a book um, about the history of American oligarchy, and this could probably be applied just world globally. I mean, he's examining it American historically, but things happen in a 40 year cycle. And what's interesting, like when you look at like in our country, it had to do with the oligarchs taking over during, you know, after slavery and then the fall again and then the rise again. And like it really examines how this happens. And it's almost like as soon as the people who are dead 
who would remember it, um, it's then it starts happening again. So it's it, it happens like over the it's really fascinating because I never looked at it that way before. But I think that that's the case. And now with that fact that there is no fourth estate, it makes it so much easier to corral people. Um, but y- y- there's a variety of things. Um, selective memory is definitely part of it. And the fact that we were never properly informed in the first place. Um, a lot of things is, you know, you see it hindsight, but I don't know your education system. Ours lacks very, very much. Ours is extremely lacking. So the history that we're taught, the history that, um, is prioritized is not the history that is going to be relevant in being able to overturn an oligarchy, right? That that's not, they're not going to keep giving you that information, but everything is cyclical. People will, can only take so much before they rise up. Power will concede nothing. It never has. And unfortunately things have to get violent. That's history. Um, and this is where this is going. We're no different than like, let's say the Roman empire or any empire. Um, they eventually use their money and their resources infinitely more to control and kill than to help their, their, their people. So when you spend more money on your military than you do on providing for your own citizens, it's only a matter of time before you're going to implode. So to, to you know, at some point there's more of us than there are of them, and then there's a revolution, and then that gets close. And like, it doesn't have to be like a, a violent revolution. Like for example, FDR in our country, that was one example. The barons, the 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 after the stock market crash, um, there there was just this desperation and this need, and so he came in essentially to save capitalism. People thought that oh he he was providing a social state, and yeah, but because he recognized that if we don't have consumers because nobody can afford to buy anything and people can't afford to live, then the money's going to dry up. So he came in at that point and put higher taxes and created work programs and did those things. And that was one cycle. And then it built up and built up and built up and the greed and the greed and the greed. And then we we had what we had um, with the crash. Oh, what was the next was like, we're talking like Reagan era. Um, when you started to see another complete control um, and relaxing of regulations and crushing of labor. And it's like, okay, did all those people from the forties forget what happened um, when there were people didn't have a basic standard of living and what happened to this country. And so, yeah, I think people forget, but it is cyclical. And to think that it's not going to happen to us is extremely short-sighted. Like you brought up a couple of things I want to, I want to address there. The, the 40 year cycle is super interesting because I've been yeah. reading a little bit about uh, this thing called Strauss-Howe intergenerational theory. So it, it attests that things happen in an 80 to a hundred year cycle through four generations to right. about 20 to 25 years. So basically it says that, and I'm going to butcher this because my notes aren't in front of me about it, but <clears throat> uh, so you have like the four stages and they call them, they, they, they kind of almost call them the seasons of history or refer to them as the seasons of history so you have like the initial um period so in this case that was like the the war it comes like just after the war comes just after a crisis and you have all the society like renewed in this like belief in the systems and the structures and the institutions and it's it's about like the the societal collective good 
And then as you kind of progress through the generations, like uh, individualism becomes more important than the institutions that were built. So you get to a point of unraveling and then crisis, and then it starts again. And normally yes. in, in their theory anyway, that crisis ends in some sort of violent conflict. Um, and it would suggest that the, the, the authors of the book from, I think in 1987, they predicted that sometime around 2020 um, or 2020 to 2025, that the, there would be uh, like a serious, serious period of, of violence or, or upheaval yeah. or, or revolution or, or something like that. But I am curious as to whether you think like violence is still what will come from this, because um, I'm also reading uh, Stephen Pinker's book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature. That's uh, It's a history of violence. So it's, it's kind of tracking how, um, whilst we still have a lot of problems in the world today, that, that we live in the most peaceful time, um, at least like in, in the, 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 the developed world um, that has ever existed. Like crime is lower, um, people live longer. It's just like a, like a more peaceful and sort of placid time to live in. Um, and there's some people that think violent conflict no longer works as a form of revolution and that we're in this kind of like fifth generational uh, warfare, like information war that's going on. Like, do you see like actual violence breaking out on the street or, or like just mass protests? Or do you think it's it's more likely to be some sort of like information war? Um, you know, in my dream universe, I had this idea that the world is just one really smart hacker away from taking all the money from the haves and giving it to the have nots. Like that the, the entire thing could ultimately be solved um, in a digital way. And that that is how the revolution, like that's ultimately how the power shift will occur. Um, but I think that the more desperate and angry people get, and again, I'm speaking as to this country, we don't have healthcare. We don't have a minimum wage that's livable. We, we have some issues that are pushing people into dire straits at mass amounts. The pandemic has obviously exponentially made everything worse. We're, we're, we're looking at probably about anywhere from 20 to 30 million homeless people that we're going to be dealing with um, relatively quickly as soon as the um, eviction moratorium is lifted. Those people will all own owe back rent. Um, and these people also never don't get any health care. So when I hear things like that and I know how desperate people are because I've seen it, um, I, I wonder what wouldn't somebody do? What would I do if my kid needed a particular operation, but my health insurance company didn't cover it? And I live in a country where I have to go into bankruptcy in order to be able to afford my kids surgery. And then I'm just living my whole life in debt and owing and just that kind of desperation, I think can lead people to do all sorts of things. I think that if you keep people kicking down and you're kicking down, yeah, I think that eventually people have had it. I think that violence, unfortunately, is the result of mass gatherings of people that are angry and desperate. I think that's inevitable. Um, but 
I don't think that ultimately that's what's going to like, I don't think storming the Capitol building is ultimately like in a physical sense going to work. No. Um, but I think that when you have so much violence around the world and I, I know what you're saying, like, yes, in our countries and a lot of the Western countries, the crime rates are down. Our, our violent crime rates are down here too. Um, that is, that is true. Um, but we've seen surges in things like domestic violence, um, PTSD, suicides, um, all sorts of, uh, of things that we've seen increases in that wouldn't be considered under the violent crime category necessarily, either unreported or what, you know, whatever the case may be. But I always say that from our country's perspective, you cannot expect to be so violent abroad we're drone bombing, I believe, eight countries right now. Civilians, people, we've bombed the same Doctors Without Border Hospital twice. Um, so you cannot- hang on, hang on, back up a second. Oh, that happened. What? Oh my God. Um, oh my God. This I saw, this was in, I want to say it was in Yemen. And this was years ago before people were even talking about it. And Eva Bartlett um, was on the ground there uh, and had been talking with you. You, you got to look this up. It was amazing. And I can't remember what show I watched her talking about this on, mm. but she was actually there the, the second time that that same hospital got bombed. So mm. she had heard that it had, from the people there that it had happened prior. And then she was actually there for the second time. And when you're us and you're working and you're giving the technology and the power to people in Saudi Arabia to do this, okay, you're not going to tell me that that's an accident. You don't accidentally bomb the same hospital twice. Um, so we're involved in all of this all around the world. And people in our country live in this little bubble because most people don't even know that that's going on. And yet it infiltrates everything about us. Why do we have such militarized police departments? What is that about? Right. Like all of this comes from this just general. We are violent people. Humans are violent. Um, no other species does that. You know, like we are violent and you cannot be colonialist, imperialist, violent people abroad and not have any violence at home. Um, that's just it, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And so that's what people were, are going to start to realize here that don't know what we're doing overseas. And that's why there's this disconnect, because people um they just see it every once in a while. There's a protest that gets out of hand. They don't see the festering, bubbling nightmare that is produced by what we do abroad, either in creating people that hate us, like in um, Gaza, mm. or whether it's from bombing people in Syria or whatever it is that's causing people to flee and be desperate mm. and have no means and I think that you can only push people so far. I, yeah. I, I do. Yeah, yeah. I think I think to that bubbling resentment, you can, you can add um, destabilizing South American regimes and and you know African regimes and yeah, um, just sort of slowly further impoverishing the the the, the vast majority of people in in America. Uh, and and we we have very similar um, conditions kind of unfolding here at home. And unfortunately, you know, it's, there's, have you seen the Michael Moore documentary, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, you know, the one about Trump after he was elected? I didn't see that. I saw the, 
You mean 11-9. 11-9, sorry, Fahrenheit yeah, 11 see, nine. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah, saw yeah. the 9-11. Yeah, no, sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't because I, I tried to avoid all things Trump. Mm. Um, like, I, I just sort of felt comfortable with my knowledge that it was basically all crap. Mm. And I didn't need to know the details <laughs> because watching him was disgusting to me. Mm. So, but yeah, please tell me. Yeah, I mean, uh, like it, the documentary isn't so much about Trump as you think. Um, it's actually more about the conditions that created him. But there's one moment that I, I, I rewatched it like fairly recently it just came up on netflix and i was bored waiting on a plane um and i was struck because there's this moment where michael moore like cuts to the the republican primaries from 2015 and trump is just like standing there in his usual sort of way and just be and it's just like you know you're a liar and you lied to get us into iraq and you lied like just like all of the the republican establishment standing there and he's just standing there calling them liars at, at the at, at in front of a crowd of like die hard republicans like the the party of of the military and of of theoretically of war and and he got a standing ovation for for telling them that they lied to take them into a fake war like and at that point I probably should have realized, like, have, have watching that in hindsight, I should have realized that was the moment he was going to win, because there would yeah. be no, there would be no other candidate in the Republican Party who would dare to do that. And Trump got a standing ovation, and I think it taps into that that, that there's probably a lot more resentment of war in both parties than 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 is realized by by the establishment. I think. Yeah. Look, it is clear, and I forget the most recent numbers on this. The majority of people here want to want to get out of all of those foreign regime war, wars that we're in, the regime change wars. The majority of people, I forget what the number is, but it's clear, like if we had a referendum on it, we'd be bringing everybody home. So but I don't think that the people really see what those things look like, like they don't see um, what's going on in a place like Yemen. Um, or what we're doing to facilitate the misery and abuse of um, of people. And so, you know, when you don't see that, I think it's kind of easy to just live in your little bubble and everything's okay. You know, I think it's, it's, it's very telling and it really does go to what we're talking about, about the media and how we're not getting that accurate information. Like for me, if I hear something about Syria I know that I'm going to go research the sources that I know are most knowledgeable about Syria. Like I'm going to go, I have like a list I keep of like different journalists with like their kind of areas of expertise and, you know, but that, but that requires so much effort. Most people don't know to even do that. So they don't even know that this is all going on. But if, when you present them with the information, most people don't want to be doing those things. Most people don't want to be spending our money on an overinflated military of offense. We shouldn't, we're not the department of defense. We have the department of offense, who are we defending ourselves from? Who is a threat to us? Um, you know, and I think more people are starting to realize that, especially from a financial perspective, in terms of how much of our money goes into our military budget. Um, but yeah, I think most people don't want that, even on any side. And one of the endearing things about Trump when he first went in was he was talking anti-war. He was giving a very populist message, a very pro-labor anti-war message. He did none of those things, mind you. Right. Um, once he got there, the deep state and the CIA and the Department of Homeland Security and all those people were whispering in his ear and he's like, oh, OK. So, you know, that was a wash. But yeah, people want to be done with this, not to mention it's personal for people. They have people that are dying in conflicts that don't need to be existing, you know? So I, it's, um, yeah, it's a massive problem. 
Do you think social media has made us lazy in trying to find good journalism? Like we just sort of open an app and it's all there, like the, the latest news. Yeah. And, and whereas before, if you want to find out about something, you kind <clears> of had to you did at least search out a little more than you do now. Like, do you, do you think that's made us lazy? Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of a, a blessing and a curse because I, you know, while yes, I do think it's made people rely on other people's information, sort of more secondhand social media information, which is not ideal. Mm. Um, more people are being brought into the fold of even being aware of what is going on. So, you know, you, you kind of just got to look at the odds. I mean, most people, you want most people to know what's going on. And you kind of, there's a little bit of hope that they'll get it from the best information source, but you know, they probably won't, but we're still better off with people being aware. So I, I think that social and without social media, a lot of our like independent news sources wouldn't be able to get any attention um, because we're so blacked out from the mainstream and from information. So social media, while allows a certain amount of laziness, um, also allows platforms like mine or yours to have a, a voice where we wouldn't. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's good and bad. It needs to be a utility, yeah, you know, yeah. it needs to be a nationalized utility. And, um, and then that would just be, and then we would solve that the whole dilemma with it. You think that would help? Oh yeah. I but know. I like, I mean, I mean, I'm just, I'm skeptical just because I don't feel like giving the, 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 the another ring of the establishment, another, you know, method of control is, is a great idea. You know, they have it anyway. Well, they already yes. do. They already control it. They just control it through those oligarchs. But the problem is, is when you do it that way, then we don't have First Amendment rights because it's a private company. Mm. So I we, mean, could you not better legislate for that rather than say like, right, imagine Trump runs in twenty. Well, you can. But this also has to do with um, the idea of broadband for everybody and access to information and that this really is our public forum now. So you you you're sort of um, saying like that this is the equivalent of the public square in front of City Hall, because that's really what what we see now. It's it is. And so, yeah, that needs to be public domain. And then it becomes um, nobody can infringe your rights to speech, blah, blah, blah. The reason they keep it the way it is, is because they're essentially able to control our speech without it being a violation of the Constitution. Mm. So they work in conjunction with Google and Facebook and, all, and Amazon and all of these things to keep us completely suppressed. And we really have no recourse because they're private companies. So it's, you know, yeah, I see the suspicion, but it's we're already getting nationalized propaganda talking points. The only difference is there's oligarchs in the middle that are profiting from it. So we're, we're sort of we it's it's six of one, half a dozen the other in terms of what I would consider um, accurate information. But it gives us recourse for um, violation of our civil liberties. I mean, I, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm not sold on the nationalizing idea because it's like, would you nationalize CNN to make them a more reliable outlet? No, but that's not a platform. Well, CNN yeah, isn't a well, platform. CNN is a publisher. I'm talking about public forums like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, and those that are just platforms. And those platforms get to censor because they're private companies and that they don't they're not subjected to our 
constitutional rights. And so those things, no, not publishers, not like um, MSNBC or any of those, those can, those are whatever. Um, I'm talking about public forums that um, are, that is where people are being most censored right now. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Twitter, Twitter and Facebook are on a serious, serious, serious. And YouTube. Mm, YouTube as well. I mean, I uh, I already had a video flagged for talking about something that was in a legitimate. Exactly. Ar- it was in an it was in an actual like article. I sent them the article, and they just they didn't even like consider the appeal. See, if that were a public <laughs> forum, mm. that would be that would you, you, they couldn't get away with that. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. It gives the control back to us in terms of asserting our civil liberties that right now we don't have. Right now, we're just a captive audience to the oligarchs that are answering to the government anyway. Would you be in favor of like the idea of a digital bill of rights to kind of codify some some like rights like 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 the 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 you know the original bill of rights but like online? Absolutely, and I also think that we need to address the issue of our private information and the sharing of our private information, and that's also part of it um, that needs to be addressed. When you're talking about digital rights, is our right to protect our private information? Um, this is not something I am an expert on. I don't completely understand the whole thing. So I just defer, but, um, Andrew Yang, who is a friend, um, is, this is one of his biggest issues about protecting privacy and giving you the benefit to profit from your own information. So in other words, if Google is going to sell your information to whoever to be marketing, okay, well, that's fine, but I'm getting a cut. Where's my dividend? That's my information. So it's ownership of your information. I don't completely understand it technologically. You'll have to look into it. But but that is the kind of thing that matters a lot to me as well. Mm. I mean, this is great. This is a great plug again for my book because this is like the opening chapter of my book is is all about um, about how our data is being being hoovered up. And essentially, um, it's not ex- as much like the actual ownership of it. It's like the the copying of what we give them. <laughs> And then the the use and then licensing of that data yeah. as part of their advertising product, um, and as part of, like something I like to remind people as well is if we just like all if, if Facebook did not have our data, it would be worthless essentially. That we we literally are the ones that have, have made it the most valuable company in the history of of the world. Um, I, I think as far as I'm aware. I'll have to check that. But eight hundred billion dollars is is nothing to be to be laughed at. They're no. more powerful than than most uh, small to medium sized countries, and they yeah essentially it's the use of our personal data because the more they understand about how about uh, both us and how we use their platforms, the more they can uh, use it to a sell us products, sell us ideas, and um, predict and understand our behavior to keep us theoretically more under control and in the lanes that they believe we should be in and, and clamping down on, on speech is, is a huge part of that because as soon as there's things that you can't say, then, you know, you're censoring yourself a little bit and you're just a little bit scared to say something. And it, it doesn't have to be like a big thing. Like they say, you definitely can't say any of these things. They just have to like ban one or two people for a couple of small things. And then everyone gets worried to talk about it. You know? Yeah. I mean, look, there's all different tactics of suppression. 
Uh, they generally, you know, I am the person that thinks that when it comes to anything, you throw enough shit against the wall, something's going to stick. So I am in favor of many tactics and they are doing the same. So we're seeing it from several different angles. And it could be as simple as um, like on YouTube. I know Jamarl Thomas's um, channel got taken down. Graham Elwood's channel got taken down. And maybe what they do is they suspend their their channel for like, you know, a couple of weeks or a month. Well, these are that's their livelihood. These are paid content creators. That's their livelihood that they're messing with. And then they even if they put it back up, are you do, are we considering the loss that they had in that time, not to mention the loss of subscribers from them being absent for however long? So it is very suppressing. It's sort of making people start over from scratch anytime they build up a certain amount of platform. And that's what it's about. It's about knocking your platform out from under you so that you're not capable of speaking truth to power. Uh, and, and look, this has been going on forever. This isn't, this isn't new. It's just that now we have all these different types of, um, platforms that we're, that we have. So we're just seeing it more. Um, but yeah, this is par for the course. I want to say there was like a handful of our, um, progressive shows were taken down and flagged, um, within the past since Biden has taken office. Yeah, Jimmy Dore did a great bit about it and kind of listed through them. Um, I can't remember the exact names of the shows, but I'll link the Jimmy Dore. Yeah, thing. there's there's a few of them. And I know I'd had Jamarl Thomas on my show. He was one of the ones that that got taken down. And this is this has been happening for a long time. Like this isn't new. It's just you're seeing it more uh condensed maybe or more more at the same time but people have been fighting these things and blocks and 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 having your stuff flagged and all of this stuff we've been fighting this forever i got flagged by face facebook for using the word biatch b-e-y-o-t-c-h oh yeah and and you could have just misspelled beach I could have, but even if I said, see, but I, again, I'm a pretty first amendment absolutist. Mm. Um, and I, I really am. I'm a first amendment absolutist with the exception of, uh, screaming fire in a building or, you know, you know, you know, calling for imminent threat and harm to somebody. But, uh, for the most part, I think we need to let everybody say what they want. And unfortunately people will get wrong information. That's part of life. The best way to counter it with good information, Mm. not taking away the other information. Um, And I also think when we do that, that is part of why we keep repeating the same things historically is because we keep suppressing historically the information that is ugly and that we don't want people to see. And so 20 years from now, 40 years from now, those things won't be there because those had been suppressed. Those videos had been taken down. Those videos were flagged. They'll fall away. And then we sort of whitewash our history. And it just continues over and over again. So, I mean, I mean, suppression of this has been going on since the earliest days of journalism. I really think that's the case that like if we if we were all better educated in history and the abuses of government throughout history, that we would be less likely to to become victims of it again. Just because, well, well yeah. like, do you, do you think that's the case? I think that if a book like Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States um, was our textbooks. And we looked at things from the viewpoint of the conquered and not from the conquerors. Um, yeah, I think that would change our perspective on everything. Imagine if our school children were raised as if they were educated by the conquered. Mm-hmm. Imagine what the mindset would be. I, I think that, yeah, I think that changes everything. I, and, and, it, it permeates everything. Cause then as we get older, we just keep perpetuating these same, they're like myths. They're myths. We don't have, a, we're not taught valid history. We're taught myths 
and vignettes like um, this hero, this person. But we don't learn about what really happened because a lot of what was really happening was suppressed at the time as well. When you could even go back to have you seen Oliver Stone's um, The Untold History of the United States? It's I think it's on Netflix. I haven't, no, OK, I'll it's have like a, a three. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it really like, honestly, you watch that, it'll be like, at least from our, and it's just our country in this. It has to, it goes back to um, how William Wallace was supposed to be Roosevelt's vice president and how the Democrats pulled the rug out from under him. And that led us to having Truman as president. Truman should have never even been president. So there's like this chain of events and it all starts with the same kind of shenanigans that we've seen since two, like we've been watching since 2016, the same kind of like party shenanigans has been going on forever. This isn't new. And yet you would think that this is all new information. Like when Julian Assange released the information about what was going on in the 2016 election, people were like aghast. And yet it happened before. So this is the, I was never taught that. I was, and I'm not saying that had I been taught the story about that, that everything would be different. But just in general, the information that doesn't serve the elites is left out of history. Um, and that's just how it is. So that we can't learn from our mistakes because we don't learn our mistakes. I mean, what would you say to some people who who kind of like hear the talk about like educating people about like our um, in the UK or the US, like the history of colonialism or the abuses of government? Like some people would hear that and immediately think like they're trying to like instill our children with like white guilt or or like guilt yeah. for for the actions of of like their forefathers and like i i am quite a big believer in in like the the the, the children shouldn't be punished for the sins of the parents um that's true and and so like yeah what what would be your response if someone went oh you know you're just trying to teach them to hate america yeah no um i'm wanting to make this country better you know what I mean? It has nothing to do with hating this country. It's about wanting to make it better in a place that serves everybody. And I can only really speak as to our history. So I don't, you know, and our history regarding the African-American experience and, and what that is. And no, I don't think people should walk around feeling guilty. I don't feel guilty. I didn't do anything to anybody. However, there is not a person in this country that is not a beneficiary of slavery. Not one. All of us are beneficiaries of slavery. Slavery built our entire infrastructure. Slavery created the mass amounts of wealth and profit that we see that have continued as generational wealth in our oligarchs now. None of that would have existed without slavery and or the abusing of the indigenous people who were here first. None of it. So whether or not you did it, I didn't do it. I didn't enslave anybody. My family were poor Jews from Russia that escaped persecution. And my people didn't own anybody, right? Like I, not that, but yet I am a white person born in a pretty privileged situation in this country that is a beneficiary of that system. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it, when you, when I talk about things like reparations, it isn't about that I'm being punished or I should feel guilty. It's about recognizing that our system that has created the life that I have is the same system. And that life is a result of the persecution of other people. And it's not, it's not one-on-one. -on -one. It's not, I, I've never done anything like that would, you know, persecute anybody, but to not recognize the privilege of being a beneficiary of it is extremely ignorant. And so if you were to even break it down financially, seriously, the amount of money 
that would be owed. There is a number. Somebody did figure it out as far as descendants of American slaves, like what their wealth, their generational and family wealth would be mm. had they been compensated all along. And so there is a number. I mean, I it's it's, it's a number that's never going to get paid. Um, but you can't ignore that and think that things can just be okay. It's having a massive debt that you owe and the, and, and, and you're never going to be able to pay it off because it's impossible to pay it off. And so the best you can do is say to the person that you owe, what can I do to restore this? What can I do to make this as good as I can going forward? What can I do to contribute to the solution? Um, so I don't, I don't have guilt and I don't think people should have guilt. I think people need to have awareness. Um, and if you don't recognize your, and this is not to say there's not poor white people. I know lots of poor white people. It's just to say that they weren't also disadvantaged by being black. Okay. It isn't saying that white people, look, you can go into parts of West Virginia and there are some poverty stricken, um, white people that live horribly. I mean, you know, this is not, but they didn't have the added discrimination of being black and they didn't have the added burden of being redlined from certain neighborhoods. And they didn't have the added burden of not being able to vote for a really long time, having their towns burnt down. You know, it's, there's just, it's not just one thing. It isn't just slavery, right? It's a history. And that's something where I can only speak is to hear. Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you mean. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a personally a fan of the idea of reparations. Um, I, I spent seven years in school studying history, um, and six of those years, or maybe even all of them, we, we did at least some portion on the Nazis, and uh, it's forever ingrained in my mind that reparations was one of the, 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 the reasons ultimately that the, the, the Nazis came to power was because it causes, it creates resentment. Um, and I, yeah, I, yeah, there, there's a lot of investment and things you could do to help um, communities without like, yeah, I'm not. I, well, that's what I'm, reparations is. It doesn't have to be individual payments. It could mm -hmm. be individual payments as well. It could be a tax reduction. It could be a lot of things. There's a myriad of ways to figure out how to make it right for people and level our playing field. But when I think reparations, what I think is a massive endowment of money that is available to these communities to use as they see fit to bring themselves up. And this is by... Um, Marianne Williamson's, um, I love her plan on reparations. That was, I sort of adopted Marianne Williamson's, uh, plan that was in her campaign. Um, and it was brilliant and it really has to do with an endowment and an infrastructure investment and all of these things in communities, um, allowing them to dictate how to help them as opposed to us coming in and saying, here's what we're going to do for you. See that that's not, that doesn't work. Well, that we could definitely agree on. I mean, top down, if yeah, if you want to, I think if you want to rebuild America, you probably start at community level and and let them sort themselves out. Uh, it's it's probably the the best way to to move forward. Uh, I, I, that's definitely my my thoughts anyway. But yeah, uh, that's what we do. Yeah, yeah. So so how can people like start? Say say they're getting like real wind up and inspired here listening to you talk. Like, what can they do, or what 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 are like the first steps we need to take to try and rectify some of the problems we've talked about here? Yeah. The first thing I always tell people is to figure out what issues matter most to you, whether it's healthcare, the environment, police brutality, like what, what are the issues that really matter most to you? 
And then I would suggest getting involved with organizations that cater to those interests. So like, for example, if you're really interested in environment here, the Sunrise Movement is great. Um, there's all different organizations. And the reason I, I like that is it keeps you in, in the loop. It mobilizes a people of like mind. I see, I always say it's very, it's great for somebody to have a vision, but when multiple people share a vision, then you have a mission. And so I think that is a key thing that you need to find your people so that you can work on a mission. And it could be a bunch of different things. I also think it's important for people to pay attention to their local politics, know who their, um, their city commissioners are, their local representatives, and just be aware. Be aware of who the power players are. Be aware of what's going on legislatively. I don't think that electoral politics is the be all end all by any means, but I think that it does exist and it, it benefits us to be as educated about it as possible because ultimately we have to navigate that to seek our mission. So like it's both aspects are important. Um, but yeah, I think that people need to get involved with other people that are on their same page and that will lead you um, to, to what, what would best serve that. And that's, everything's a contribution. That's what I think. Well, that feels like a, a nice positive note on which to end things. <laughs> Jen, um, thanks very much. Uh, everyone go check out uh, her podcast, Generational Change. I will put the link in. I got to plug my live stream on Saturday. Yes, please go ahead. Okay, so Saturday, March 20th, two, well, no, 1.30 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We did it on the earlier end to um, accommodate people over where you are uh, so that it wouldn't be the middle of the night. And this is a free Assange forum. I will be hosting, Katie Halper and I are co-hosting multiple panels throughout the day. Um, we're not only gonna be talking about Julian Assange, but the, the goal is to bring in viewership and promote both a script that we have. We want people to be calling their legislators, calling our Department of Justice, and imploring them to drop the case against Julian Assange. We want to flood them with phone calls and emails. So this is sort of like a, it's a telephone type of thing with the sole purpose of educating as many people as possible about what's going on with Julian Assange. So we'll be discussing different things. Like we're going to have some talk on foreign relations. We'll talk a little bit about independent media. Like it'll, depending on which panel, which hour, we have an entire program is on my um, page. Uh, generationalchange.com. You could check that out. We are also Spotify, iTunes, and um, YouTube. And check out our podcast. And you could follow us on social media at genfl23. That's um, Twitter and Instagram. And on Facebook, I'm Jen Perlman. Fantastic. I will put links for everything there in the description below. Um, so yeah, Jen, thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Bye.